0: In episode 109, we introduced you to Dr. Rishi Sriram, who is an associate professor at Baylor University. He wrote an article that sparked our interest, and we reached out to him in the hopes that he would join us. And Boy, are we glad that he joined us. In episode 109, he hit so many touch points that resonated deeply with us. And frankly, we couldn't wait to bring him back to teach us more. We wasted no time, and today you'll get to hear our second conversation with him. This episode plays out like a college class. Steph and I were the students as he taught us more deeply about his ghost river to the sea strategy, which he dives into in this episode. As a reminder, you can listen to our extended conversation with Rishi over on Patreon by joining us for $5 a month. You are supporting the work that we do here at learn smarter podcast. And in exchange, you get access to all the extra content and goodies that are exclusively available on Patreon to join us and support our mission to expand awareness and access to education, educational therapy, please go to learn slash podcast. Welcome to class, Smarties. Let's dig in.
1: You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast.
2: Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 115 of Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are welcoming back Dr. Rishi Sriram. We're so happy to have you back with us to talk more about all the things with productive struggle and learning that you made us both just sit here and go, wow, that was amazing. Blew our minds. So we wanted more. So here we are. That was episode 109. So if our
0: audience hasn't listened to that, we've linked that in the show notes. We're excited to have you
2: back and teach us
0: more.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me again.
2: Yeah. Walk us through a little bit of what you talked about in episode 109, just so we give our audience a little refresher, or if they haven't listened, to go back and listen to that one first before we delve into all of the specifics today.
1: Well, one of the things that we started talking about in episode 109 was how, with Carol Dweck's research on mindset, it's so much about the beliefs that people have about intelligence and learning and how important those beliefs are. But one thing that I've been really interested in is actually getting to the science of learning. How do you actually become more intelligent? How do you learn based on what we know from? really decades, more than half a century of research on learning, and in my own journey as a professor in a school of education, I was really humbled by how little I knew about the science of learning, and once I started learning it, I was just amazed and thought I need to share this in whatever venues I have available, certainly as a parent and as a professor, and I've had the joy of sharing that with you. One of the things that I think was the theme from that episode was this idea of productive struggle and how our brain creates these pathways. And there's this white substance, fatty substance in our brain called myelin that wraps around those pathways to really speed them up. So the reason that struggle can be so helpful to learning is that it actually makes our brain signals faster, stronger, and better.
2: Still mind blowing second time around. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we're hearing it again. Yeah, me
0: too. Why don't we just say the four specific things that we talked about in episode 109? Because actually, it's a part of your larger strategy approach. This was just highlighted in a specific article and for us in that episode. So do you want to share them? Or do you want me to share them?
1: No, yes, I'm happy to do it. And that's exactly right. For that article in Edutopia and because of time constraints with our podcast, I wanted to highlight some of the key learning strategies, one of them being retrieval and one being interleaving, one being spacing, and one being mindfulness. And it was really fun getting to unpack those four really important facets of the science of learning with both of you really excited to be back because while those are four really important facets, there's more to the science of learning. So I created at least what I think is a cute little acronym for learning about learning. And I call it Ghost River. And specifically, it's take the ghost river to the sea. And this is how I remember all the elements that, that come together together to help us learn better. And when I say us, I really do mean all of us human beings that remarkably as different and unique as we are and how I think those uniquenesses should be honored and they're important, we learn in surprisingly and remarkably similar ways.
0: All right, let's dig into it. So this is interesting because you just said that people learn In surprisingly similar ways. I'm sure this has been tested, but that's across socioeconomic status, race, gender. We learn in the same way.
1: That's absolutely correct. When race and gender and socioeconomic status come into the picture, it's because they are hindering the things that we're gonna talk about on today's episode that are so helpful to learn.
0: Understood. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we'll give you the floor, Professor.
1: Go ahead and teach us. Well, I think it's appropriate to start with uh, defining what I mean by learning. And I think maybe a fancier definition would be that learning is acquiring knowledge and skills and having them readily available from memory so that we can make sense of future problems and future opportunities but I think maybe a simpler definition is this idea of converting short-term memories into long-term memories that are usable. So this idea of ghost river to the sea is all about how we can do a better job of converting our short-term memories into long-term memories that we can then use as we need them. And it starts with generation, that's the G in ghost river. And generation is the idea of how important it is to generate answers or solutions before you learn anything. And this is counterintuitive because we want to learn something before we try to use it. But what we've found in research is that generating answers, even when we feel totally clueless, actually helps us learn better by warming up the brain. And a real practical way that I think this comes across in studying strategies is how important it can be to read the review questions first before you read the material. Well, why does that work? It's because it actually frustrates your brain to not know. So when you encounter things, when you actually try to do things that your brain doesn't know how to do or try to answer problems that you don't know how to answer, Your brain creates this healthy frustration so that when you do make available the material that the brain needs, it more readily absorbs that information because it wants to do well. It wants to succeed.
2: Fair enough it's a
0: strategy that we advocate all the time is read the questions before in fact not only just read the questions but go ahead and start answering the questions so all you have to fit in is the unknown especially with the younger student for example but it's how we advocate for studying as well figure out the questions that are going to be asked and try to answer them before you get started
1: and all of a sudden when you do that you're cluing your brain in into what it needs to know and so that the small pieces of information in all the noise really start to pop out because you've primed your brain.
0: To be ready for it. It makes a lot of sense.
1: Okay. So then we get to the H in Ghost River, and H is for habits. So when we talk about the idea of converting short-term memories to long-term memories, that sounds scientific, it sounds fancy, but we're all very familiar with the idea of habits. And habits are simply that. They're brain pathways, brain signals that have been so well myelinated that we can do or think things without thinking. Now, of course, our brain is thinking, but that thinking is happening so fast. Those signals are so strong that we can't help but think it. So it's not requiring our conscious, full attention. It's like if I put a word in front of you and asked you, do not read it. You can't do that. You can't not read a word that's in front of you. Mm-hmm. At, once upon a time, reading that word would have been extremely tenuous for you. It would have taken a lot of concentration and work. Well, those pathways have been so well myelinated that its reading has become a habit. For us, we don't see letters anymore. We see words. Eventually, we start to see groups of words together, and that's how we read faster and faster. Well, this is true for everything that we want to master, everything that we want to be good at. Repetition really does create this version of habits with any kind of thought or feeling or attitude that we desire. So, when we're trying to learn something, first clue the first signal that we have available to us that it's not a habit is if we have a hard time remembering it so you already mentioned how important forgetting is to learning and it is we have to forget by default that's how our brain survives in a world of endless information but when we're really wanting to learn something the more struggle it takes for us to recall that information we need that's the sign of how far we have to go before that information has really become habitual. We're quiet because
0: we're processing. Mm -hmm.
2: I think the reading example was really relatable for that example. For me, I have like a quota on the amount of habits I can keep going at once. And Sometimes I need to prioritize those habits of what needs to actually get done. And I can see that with some of my clients. Mm -hmm. Have they reached the limit? Like, what do we really need to make sure that they are doing habitually? And what are things that we try to encourage to become habits? But it makes sense.
1: You know, in our last episode, episode 109, we talked about this metaphor of where do you want dirt roads versus paved roads, versus freeways, and it takes a lot of time and resources to create freeways in our brains for everything that we want to learn. It's not practical, and so some things I think it's okay to say this is not something that I want to be automatic and habitual, and other things it's like, no, I mean I want to go into medicine, so what I'm learning in biology now, I want to learn over the long haul. And so I need to make it habitual. I need to master it versus, no, I need to do well on this test to get through this class. Yes, all learning is important, but some of it I want to take with me for decades to come. And some of it, it's okay if I don't remember how to do that calculus problem 10 years from now.
0: Right, exactly. Just to be anecdotal, one of the things that can be really fun about me, for you, I feel like is the fact that I forget So much, so much, (laughs) and I'll be Steph. What was that, or who was that? There's a lot of those conversations going on between the two of us, but I know it in my brain that I just never said, "Rachel, store this. Mm -hmm. Like,
2: pay attention to this." Yeah, you said something to me the other day about it. What did I say? Remind me. See, (laughs) she said something about how I need to tell myself that I need to remember this in order for it to stick. She said that.
0: Yeah. That's how learning always has occurred for me is I would have to actively and very consciously say, no, 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 no. This is important for me to hold on to. Otherwise, I have a lot more empathy for my mom now because she would forget <laughs> a lot of things. And I would get so frustrated, especially as a teenager. I'm like, we just talked about this, but I have so much more empathy for that now because I see that playing out in my life with everything that I am consuming.
1: I think it's a really helpful anecdote because I do feel like we're almost having an ongoing conversation and negotiation with our brain about what we want it to remember and what it's willing to remember. And we want to say, oh, remember everything. And the brain says, no, thank you. And so then we have to enter into, okay, well, what can I persuade you to really know, to kind of know, and to forget? And we do that through the amount of attention and effort that we put to learning. So true. Okay, that brings us to the O in Ghost River, and that's for organization. One thing that we know about experts and expertise is that it's not so much that they know more, although they probably do but it's much more about how they know better. Experts know information better. And when I say that, what I mean is that they organize that information in ways that are easy to understand, categorize, and then access that information as they need it. So the idea of organization is putting information into a structure or a framework that really makes sense from kind of the big level thinking and then funneling down to the details. So in other words, not all information is equal. Some things are grouped together, some things are more important than others, some things are the finer points, and some things are the major principles or theories that we need to know. And our brains are designed to learn this way. Our brains like organized information, and therefore they learn organized information much better. So, when we want to study something, we kind of tend to think as novices that it's just a bunch of random information. But the people who are teaching us that information know that this isn't random at all, that it all breaks down into larger categories. And when you see how those categories fit together, this work pays off. So, from a more practical perspective, when it comes to organization, if learners can create a scaffold or framework that helps them understand information. I mean, think about what I'm doing right here with this idea of ghost river to the sea, right? That organizes the information instead of me having to think, okay, what were the 13 principles of learning that I want to convey? I remember them much more easily. I recall them easily in a particular order because I created this acronym. We do that when we create silly phrases. We do it when we study the table of contents and really appreciate what table of contents can do for organizing information. It's all about trying to understand the gist before we try to understand the details. And, you know, one of my favorite metaphors for this are those detective shows where someone is trying to solve a really complex crime. And so they have on the board all these pictures pinned together on how everything connects, right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of like the quintessential detective moment where they're standing back against their pins and their threads and looking and say, okay, how does this all connect together? That's what we're doing when we organize information. It's a filing cabinet. Yeah, it is. Again, going into medicine. You know, it's not that doctors remember a million random facts about the body. No, they think in systems. There's the skeletal system. There's the circulatory system. There's the respiratory system. Then those systems have components, and then those components have components. Eventually, you get down to some really minute details, but it's not lost because it's fitting into this larger schema that they have on how the human body works.
0: We talked about in your earlier episode about how you basically present to your students, what you're going to be lecturing about, what they're supposed to learn at the beginning. It's because you're giving them that framework for how to think about things. And this is how you're going to organize it in your brain. So you can go directly to it. It would be a really interesting final if you just gave them that blank framework and said, here, fill it out.
1: That's right. (laughs) Yeah. I used to think as a more novice teacher I used to think that I was supposed to give my students some kind of surprise ending at the end of class, right? Right. Like, oh, we've been building up to this, we've been building up to this, and bam, here's the climax. Here's what was all about. And that doesn't honor how difficult learning is. I can't just tell them the most important points at the end that I've been building toward for an entire semester or year, and then expect them to really understand it. And so I've completely flipped that as a teacher. I now say, these are the most important things. We're going to spend all semester talking about these things. If at the end, all you remember are these important things, then I've done my job as a teacher.
0: It's something that Steph and I will talk about when we're coaching the clients that we're working with and we're working with them is you should be able to predict what the essay question is going to be. I love that. The teacher has told you either overtly or subvertly what is important to them I remember when I was a student, I would use that. I was a net therapist before I knew I was a net therapist, my own learning. And so I would use that of like, what do I think the essay question is going to be? And I would write out mnemonics and things to help me with, okay, I think it could potentially be these one or two or three different topics. And this is how I need to prepare because I'm throwing a dart at the wall, but I'm hoping I'm right. And I was generally right. Because I was a student in the class. And so it's very interesting.
1: Well, we should come back to that example. It's that simple thing that you did incorporates so many of the principles. Mm. So next up is the S in Ghost River, and that's spacing. This is something that we talked about in episode 109. Because if your listeners feel overwhelmed even by Ghost River to the sea, and they're like, I need one thing. Give me one thing. Yeah. And then I'll re-listen to this podcast and pick up a second thing. I think that one thing would be spacing, which is this idea of spacing out your practice, distributing your practice evenly over time. Sometimes this is touted in ways that say, oh, well, it will make you feel more disciplined. It will make you feel more organized. But I don't think the general population knows. What spacing actually does to enhance learning, how it's actually a time saver, because as we mentioned before, the brain likes to sip, not chug, and your brain really likes to take in information and then be able to do the work to process. You've used the word encode on your podcast before, where we're converting those short term memories to long term memories. Your brain needs time to do that. And so if somebody comes, To me and says, Oh my goodness, I have a test tomorrow. What should I do? I would say, You should cram. You should absolutely cram. Take every moment that you can between now and that test and use it to get as much information as possible. But what you should know is that cramming only works for short term memory. So while you might do okay, you might do great, you might do poorly on the test tomorrow. It's all lost beyond that test. So if anything that you're learning for that test tomorrow has relevance to you in the future, then the time that you've spent cramming, it will be completely wasted. It will go toward the test and then be gone. Whereas when we space out our learning, when we don't cram, when we distribute it over time, what happens is that your brain soaks it in over that time in a much deeper way And it gives the brain the space and the time to encode those memories. And then you're learning it better and you're learning it for longer. And so, with my kids and even with my students, I talk about BRSs, which stands for brief, regular sessions. I think that if you're taking something seriously, for me, I've found that 30 minutes is about the max before I need a break. And that break might only literally be a minute or two. But, you know, pure concentration takes a lot of energy, and so that concentration can be better used if we say, yes, I'm going to fully concentrate, fully engage, but I'm going to do it for 30 minutes, and if that seems long, then cut that in half. I'm going to do 15 minutes. We talked about the cube timers that I'm in love with. Mm-hmm. That you can just flip to a side and it starts dinging at 15 minutes without you having to get on a phone or anything like that. And when you do that, it allows you to really space out your practice because if I'm thinking, oh, I have a major test or there's something I really want to learn, I should study three hours. Well, that's so daunting that you're not going to do any studying at all, or you're going to do three hours of a little bit of study, a little bit of Facebook, a little bit of Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, so on and so forth. You're much better off saying, no, I'm going to do 30 minutes. And then I'm going to do 30 minutes tomorrow and 30 minutes the next day. Or if I need more time, I'll do 30 minutes now. And then in the afternoon, maybe do 30 more minutes.
2: Love that sort of chunking. I'm a big fan of the chunking for sure. Mm -hmm.
1: And then that brings us to testing, the tea and ghost river. So testing is the idea of forcing yourself to use or apply the learning material in the way that you will eventually be tested on it. So this might come across as commonsensical, like no duh, but how many times do we do drills or other things that are really, really good for our learning and we can do those to the extent that we stop thinking about how we're actually going to be tested on the material? So I want to go back to your anecdote. If you're writing an essay for your test, never in my life have I written an essay in preparation for writing an essay, and now I know that writing an essay is one of the best things I can do in preparation for writing an essay, so if you have the essay questions, which sometimes we do, then we need to practice writing those essays, writing those responses, as excruciating as that feels, and maybe even as wasteful as that feels. Shouldn't I be studying rather than actually doing the thing. And so in our minds, we separate the doing and the learning. And in reality, doing is learning, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're taking that test, when we're actually writing that essay, we're learning the material as we're having to recall it and digest it and express it in words. So your anecdote of generating essay questions if you don't have them is so helpful. And then when you start to actually respond to those questions that you've created, you're really doing something that is beneficial to your learning. And I probably ran into this the most when I tried coaching my daughter's fourth grade basketball team. And, you know, it was a lot of fun and I was really into it, over into it, (laughs) as you can only imagine, right? (laughs) Took it extremely seriously. And so I had these girls do all of these drills over and over again, right? And then we get into our first game and it's just absolute chaos. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? We've practiced all our dribbling, we've practiced all our passing, we've practiced all our shooting, we've practiced all our defense, drill after drill after drill, and we get into a game and it's like we haven't done any of that stuff. Mm -hmm.
0: You didn't practice the game.
1: We didn't practice (laughs) the game. The most important (laughs) practice, right? And so now I've learned to do what every good coach has known, right? You have to incorporate scrimmages. You don't just scrimmage yeah no coach would do that the drills are vitally important and at the same time you can't just do drills at the expense of not practicing in the way that you're actually going to be tested so if you're encountering a multiple choice test then give yourself questions And maybe make it harder and don't give yourself the multiple choices and see if you can answer them. If you're writing essays, then write essays for practice. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're being called upon to do, practice that.
2: I like it. Love.
0: I love. I'm just thinking about the students who are going to hear me say, write a practice essay. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
1: yeah. Yeah, that's exhausting. Good times. We'll get them there. Okay, so we finished Ghost, and now we're in the river part of Ghost River, and that starts with retrieval, and retrieval is something that we talked about in episode 109, and it's actively recalling information from memory, so one of the things that we discussed was in psychology, we call it the illusion of familiarity, if you put material in front of you, your brain does not want to work hard. One way to escape working hard is by convincing you this material is all familiar. I recognize all of it. Therefore, you must know it. You don't need to study. Like, just review this material, glance at the words, glance at the terms, convince yourself, yes, I could define that. And then we create this illusion. We go into the test and we say, oh, my goodness. Everything on my notes, I understood. It felt familiar. I thought I knew it. And now I'm being asked to recall it from memory and I cannot do it. So we have to practice recalling. We have to practice retrieving that information from memory. It works out the brain, which also means that it's hard work. It's energy draining. It needs our full engagement. But As we do that, it deepens the memory, it paves the road, and it actually moves information from one part of our brain to other parts of our brain to make that information more accessible. So going back to this idea that we're in constant negotiation with our brains about what's important and what's not, well, retrieval is one of the things that tells our brain, oh my goodness, do you really wanna do this much work to retrieve this information? every time I need it. Well, no. As your brain, I don't want to do that if you're going to need this information often. I'll move it closer. I'll move it to where it's more accessible so that you can retrieve it faster. So we all know that flashcards are a great way to study. We've also talked about how writing out what you know on a blank sheet of paper, whether it's writing the essay or just writing your own outline or notes on a blank sheet of paper is one of the best things that you can do. Anytime you're in the car and you want to, instead of getting on social media, practice doing the hard work of remembering at random times. Each time you do that, it's painful, it doesn't feel good, it's work. But every time you do that, it strengthens those signals, it makes that information more readily available. And then when you've written out those notes or when you've written that essay, you can say, hey, where are the gaps? Where are the misses? And that also helps direct you on where you need to study and put your future time. Love. Okay, that brings us to interleaving. Interleaving is another element that we discussed in episode 109. And it's a fancy term for moving from one subject or subsubject to another rather than focusing on one set of material. So the opposite of interleaving is massed practice. And we talked about a famous study from the 1970s where a group of researchers had children throw beanbags at a target three feet away. And then over the next several weeks, half the students, half the children continued to practice at a target three feet away. The other half could only practice at targets two and four feet away. Lo and behold, at the end of the experiment, six weeks later, eight weeks later, when they tested all the children on how good they could perform, how well they could do at this task of throwing beanbags at a target three feet away, the group that had practiced at two and four feet away magnificently outperformed the group that had always practiced at three feet away. This is counterintuitive. We think practicing the thing that we're going to be tested at in the exact way that we're going to be tested always leads to better learning. There's this idea of interleaving when we can make it more difficult by changing the target. So moving the target was literal in this experiment, but we can move the target in some really easy ways with what we want to learn. So one of the things I like to tell my students when it comes to interleaving is before I know that chapter 12 was assigned to you, Before you read chapter 12, I know you're pressed for time. I know you just want to get it done. Before you do that, pick a chapter, 1 through 11, pick a chapter and review it before you read chapter 12. That's interleaving. And you can, again, set a timer. I will do this for 10 minutes. That's as much as I can take. I'll review chapter 8 for 10 minutes. And then the next time when I'm assigned chapter 13, I'm going to pick chapter 4 randomly review. And what this does is it brings things constantly before us, and therefore we learn it better. If we're talking about a physical skill, then we move the target, right? We practice our free throws from 12 feet and 18 feet and 12 feet rather than the standard 15 feet. Or we think about how we can study math for a particular amount of time, again, maybe 30 minutes, and then force ourselves to move on to English, even if we haven't finished math, right? Psychologically, I get that we want to get things off of our checklist. We want to get them done. So we don't want to move on to history when we haven't completed English or when we haven't completed math. But by doing so, interrupting the brain, so to speak, this interleaving will actually deepen our learning. It will frustrate us. It won't feel good. But in the end, the benefits far outweigh the cost of discomfort.
0: I want to ask a question about that, because it's not multitasking, which we know doesn't work for our brains. That's right. But I want to ask if something that I remember experiencing as a student and really liking as a student is an example of interleaving, but it's within the context of one class. So when I was taking Algebra and Algebra 2, there was like a year gap in between, but same teacher. And He would do something on the homework that no other teacher that I'd ever had for math would do, which is he would always, always, always like the first six to nine problems were always review of previously learned concepts. And so it wasn't on the concept that we learned that day, but I really appreciated that as a student, now I really appreciate it as an adult, as an ed therapist, that it works a lot with math because I never forgot material because it was constantly being, hey, don't forget. Is that an example of interleaving?
1: It's a perfect example. In fact, there was a person, a mathematician uh, with the last name Saxon who developed Saxon math based on that entire concept. The whole concept, my kids have gone through Saxon math And it's that you only present a few problems from the new material, and all the other problems are from old material. And it is light and night different from what I experienced in math, where I learned on a short-term basis, made really great grades on the test, and then didn't remember a thing. And so long-term, I really struggled with math, even though I scored high grades of that lack of interleaving. Yeah. Highly recommend it. It's really neat, but you don't have to go through quote unquote Saxon math to do just what you were talking about. Right.
0: From my recollection, he would call them problem sets that he had developed over the years. He would just reuse them every year, but he had generated the curriculum which the amount of time that that would have taken for all these different levels of math, but it was impactful and it made it more pleasurable because I wasn't starting on problems that were brand new. I was starting on problems that I already knew how to do. So it was an easy entryway point into doing the quote unquote new stuff.
1: That's exactly right. Okay. That brings us to the V of variation. And variation is this, you know, the cliche that variety is the spice of life. Mm. Well, variety is the spice of learning as well. And a variety can be really helpful to your studying, but almost in ironic fashion, because when we study in the same place and the same time, using the same methods, it helps our learning. But this is ironically counterproductive because where we're being tested isn't that place or space or time or in those methods. So when we tie our learning to specific habits of study, we're actually hurting ourselves because then we're having to go into the classroom or wherever it might be and and apply that learning. And so we have to actually unsync our learning from place and space and time. So I actually recommend to my students that they don't study in the same place every time, that they don't choose the same time of day, and they don't study things in the same order so that your brain doesn't get attached to, okay, this is where I think about math, So that when you go out into the world, you're not like, well, brain, I need you to think about math now. And it's like, no, this really isn't my environment. Right.
0: It's like when we're training Fritzy, my dog, and my husband and I talk about like we have to do his tricks in other parts of the house. Yes. Because he's really used to doing it in the kitchen right where his treats are. And I'm like, no, we're going to do it out here today or we're going outside to do it today because we want him to be able to perform even if he's not in our kitchen.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it.
0: He's very sweet. <laughs> I love dogs.
1: Yeah. Okay, E. E is for elaboration. So one of the things that was surprising to me in learning about learning is that there aren't really these learning styles, at least in the way that we talk about them. But like I said before, we as in human beings learn in remarkably similar ways, Our personalities are important, our preferences are important, the things that excite us or demotivate us are really important and those are really individualistic, they're unique about us, teachers should attend to those things. But when it comes to actually learning, we all learn in consistent ways. And so the first thing that I want to communicate about that is that visual trumps all other senses. I joked last podcast that nobody ever says, I'm not a visual learner, right? Nobody says, will you please stop showing this to me? I need to just hear it, right? (laughs) We all feel like, oh, I'm a visual learner. Can you show it to me? And we almost say it apologetically, right? Like I'm learning deficient. And so you have to really map it out for me. When in reality, we're just being honest with our instincts that are saying, no, when we see something, our brain understands it better. So elaboration is first honoring that visual trumps everything else, and then saying as many other senses as we can add, the better. So it's kind of like saturating your brain with a mist instead of a fire hose. (laughs) So while we do want to honor the visual, we want to make our own charts, tables, graphs. We want to create our own stories. We want to create our own examples of the information that we're trying to learn. Those are all good things for our sense of sight. But then we also want to walk around while studying. We want to read it out loud so that we're hearing it while we're learning. Believe it or not, there are research studies that show if we wear a particular cologne or perfume only when we're studying particular material, if we wear that cologne and perfume when we're being tested, it will help us recall that material better. So even our sense of smell can be tied to learning. I've never done that, but I had a college student who said, that's so crazy, I wanna try it. And he swore that it worked. Mm -hmm. So uh, I at least have his testimony that that works. But elaboration is just this idea of first understand that visual is most important, then add as many senses as you can This is
0: a stupid example, but I know when watching certain TV shows, suddenly I'm craving the same food that I was snacking on the previous time I was watching those shows.
1: Wow. That is a crazy example, but it's a true example. Mm -hmm. It really works. That's how our brains are designed to connect and make connections. Mm -hmm. All right. R. Okay. We're almost at the end of Ghost River. Yes. Our last letter of Ghost River, R, is for reflection. And reflection is about thinking about your performance and how you can improve upon it. It's important because it tells you what you need to study, which will save you a great deal of time. When we're studying, we are tempted to want to focus on the percentage that we get correct, the percentage that we've mastered. It shows that we're making progress, which is great. It shows mastery, which is really encouraging. But what it doesn't do is put our attention on what we haven't yet learned. So with reflection, my advice is don't gloss over your mistakes. Instead, become focused on them. Whenever you test yourself, make a note of what you miss so that you can focus your studying there. Don't just brush it off because you got 13 other things correct. Maybe you're studying with flashcards. Uh, you know, sometimes we talk about making two piles, right? Those flashcards that you got right go in one pile. Those flashcards that you got wrong go in a second pile. Well, now become obsessed with the second pile, the ones that you got wrong to the point where you're better at that pile than the ones that you got right. And then you can go back to the other pile. Yep. Listen
0: to our episodes on studying once again.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about this and there's so much fear involved. With reflection, we have to feel a sense of safety. If we feel like we are learning deficient, if we feel stupid, if we feel like other people are better at learning than I am, then we want to run from our mistakes because they're judgments upon our ability to learn. And this is what pushes us to a fixed mindset, which I know that you talk about often on this podcast. But when we get into this thinking of, I can't learn this. I can't learn this as well as other people. Then we've shut down our capacity to learn. But when we're like, no, I can learn anything. There's nothing I am not capable of learning, especially using these techniques in Ghost River. Then we feel safe to embrace our mistakes and to really improve upon them. And that's what makes a difference between people Really tend to master material and those who kind of tend to plateau.
2: Yeah, I'm just thinking about all the kids that like to only study what they already know, mm-hmm. which happens all the time in my practice. That I sit there and say, I don't want you to spend any more time on this because they already know all of it. And they shy away from the stuff that they don't know.
1: Yeah. It's an emotional decision.
0: It requires vulnerability mm-hmm. to say, I don't know this. Yes. And so I'm going to focus on that. And then it leads to interesting conversations with parents too, because they studied, well, they studied the wrong things. Mm-hmm. They studied what they already knew, which is naturally human Yes, to go towards what feels better. And what feels better is the stuff we already know.
1: hmm But when we get to the point where we believe that we can learn anything, then those mistakes become less scary. They become invitations. They become challenges that we want to seek out. Yes. So the final touch of Ghost River to the Sea involves these three elements that I think are great learning amplifiers. So Ghost River are the 10 or so things that really capture, encapsulate the science of learning in a way that I think is helpful and memorable and allows us to, I hope, use this information for when we want to go and learn something. Taking the ghost river to the sea are things that are less about the science of learning and more about the things that we know from science that really amplify our ability to learn. And the S in it is for sleep. Sleep is something that we used to think is an activity that allows the brain to rest. And now we know it's the opposite. Sleep is when the brain does its most important work. And it's able to do that because it's not busy trying to keep us alive. It's not trying to keep us from falling. It's not trying to keep us from, you know, doing things that might hurt us or others. And so when we're sleeping, it's like, okay, great, you know, you're in a safe place. Now I can do the work that I really need to do. So during sleep, the brain brings in much needed nutrients and it dumps out toxins that it really needs to get rid of. And when we reduce our sleep, we reduce our ability to get those nutrients and we reduce our ability to dump out those toxins. Uh, sleep is also when your brain decides what to keep and what to discard from the day. So this is like cutting edge research. And so I'm speculating just a little bit here from what we believe is happening. But the latest research seems to indicate that when we sleep, we are literally replaying our day in our mind. And the brain is deciding what elements from the day it's going to keep. In other words, convert Hmm. from short-term memories to long-term memories and what elements it's going to let go of and forget. So when we shorten sleep, it can't do that. And so everything just gets forgotten. And we really need that sleep in order to create that encoding. So I like to tell my students, great news, sleeping is learning. Yeah. You know, (laughs) this is wonderful that when you're doing the hard work of putting in the time to learn the material, best thing that you can do to amplify that is to get plenty of sleep.
0: I love hearing this. I'm a master sleeper. It's my favorite hobby.
1: <laughs> and it's true for naps as well. You know, from NASA <laughs> to other companies, they've found that we actually vary as human beings. Some of us feel most energetic at night. Some of us feel most energetic in the mornings. If I were to guess about your listeners, I would say from somewhere around 10 a.m. up until lunchtime is when they're most engaged. But that won't be true for all your listeners. Some of them really are night owls. But what is consistent, believe it or not, among all human beings is that we all get tired in the afternoon. And so what they find is that naps can really give your brain a boost by taking an afternoon nap. That post-afternoon time really gives your brain a boost
0: so Spain is doing it right with the siesta. They are. Yeah.
1: It's funny that you mentioned that because America is so obsessed with productivity, right? This is how yes. we've become such a great nation. And so we're getting to the point where we're saying the less you sleep, the more honorable you are. Right. The more you work, the better you are. That's something to brag about. And these are things that we're showing now are actually literally counterproductive, that you're spending more time and getting less from it.
0: That's part of what businesses and people are learning in quarantine, too, about productivity. Yes. We don't value vacation in this country. We don't value maternity and paternity leave, family lifestyle. Everything is about being productive for your work. But I think we're all kind of questioning that, too, in this period of time, because we had no other choice but to question it
1: right i think we're going to see more and more of companies launching four-day work weeks and other things yes schools considering starting later so that kids can sleep a little bit more
0: yeah i think this has forced lots of institutions that have kind of been dug in on the way that things have done because that's the way things have been done they've been forced to pivot now so it will be interesting to see. Yes. You know, the companies that were already comfortable with work from home are even more comfortable with work from home now. And the companies that weren't have had no choice. Like we were talking about off air. It'll be very interesting to see what researchers are writing about the year 2020 and 2030 40 years.
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay, the E. The ENC is for exercise. And I've always heard that exercise is good for you. Exercise is important. What was new to me was the direct connection between exercise and learning. And the reason is a very logical one. The brain, as I mentioned, takes in nutrients through blood flow and removes toxins through blood flow. Well, what exercise does is it increases blood flow throughout our bodies, which includes our brain. And so when our brains have more access to more blood because our circulatory systems are running more efficiently and more effectively, our brains are able to function better. And so they have found that when it comes specifically to learning, I'm not talking about any of the other health benefits that come from exercise. When you are just looking at learning, aerobic exercise leads to greater intelligence. It leads to a higher ability to learn. And not only that, but strength training does as well. Well, whenever it comes to exercise, I like to think in minimums, not in ideals. Like tell me what the minimum amount is. (laughs) And what I've found is about 30 minutes of aerobic exercise just twice a week I think, is a minimum amount where you will see an impact in your learning, in your brain functioning. And then if you can add strength training or if you can do more than two days a week, that's even better.
2: I like it. All right. So what's the A?
1: Well, it brings it all home. The A is attention. Mm. You mentioned earlier that there is no such thing as multitasking, which is so true. The brain can only pay attention to one thing at a time. So while you can say, yes, I can do multiple things at a time, your brain is not paying attention to multiple things at a time. What it's doing is it's doing this constant back and forth that is wearing your brain out. You're learning less. You're getting less from the experience. You're making less meaning from the experience and you're totally draining your battery, so to speak. So, paying attention to multiple things at the same time is a lie, but it's a lie that our brains allow us to believe, because our brains are remarkable, and it's like we can text and drive at the same time, but what you're really doing is driving for a few seconds, then texting for a few seconds, then driving, and that's why it becomes so dangerous, because what happens in those few seconds? So, we have to set aside time to fully focus. Attention is our most valuable resource. And the older I get, the more I have to relearn this lesson and believe it all the more that attention is my most valuable resource. It's not my money. It's not even my time, except for how I'm using my time to place my attention. When we can set aside time to fully focus on what matters the most to us, we give ourselves the opportunity to really develop and really grow and really learn from those experiences. We feel happier, that's what the research shows. In episode 109, we talked a lot about mindfulness, which is this idea of meditating in a way that's directing your focus, and it's practicing paying attention. It feels good, you feel relaxed, but it's also honing your skills. So attention is something that I feel like society convinces us that some people are just good at attention and some people are bad at it. And I think that attention, although there are all sorts of things that can go wrong and disorders that involve attention, I really do think that attention is also a skill that we can learn to perfect or at least improve upon through things like mindfulness meditation. And there are lots of apps available for that. or just choosing to be fully present fully engage the thing that's before us
0: I feel like I'm just sitting in a college lecture again Mm -hmm. and I love being a student so I have just enjoyed the heck out of this but is there anything you want to leave our audience with any kind of last words of hey guys if nothing else what do you want our audience to know what do you want us to know and understand
1: I think I want to reiterate that I got my PhD in education and became a professor in a school of education at a major research university before I knew any of this. Right. So if your listeners take ghost river to the sea and take one two three elements that kind of stuck out to them and really try to apply it really try to live it out with consistency I think the progress, the return on investment that they get is going to lead them back to this podcast where they can learn other elements because all of these elements together are all extremely beneficial for learning. And I think the one thing I want your learners and your listeners to take away is that they can learn anything, that there are strategies behind this that perhaps they haven't been taught before. Here we have discussed them. We've taught them. So take these things, apply them where you think that they're helpful to you, and enjoy the results.
0: Love. Almost makes me wonder if we should do a Ghost River series stuff of how we think about this as educational therapists. I don't know. We have so many ideas for this podcast, but this has just sparked some real, hopefully meaningful conversations and impacts the lives of learners, ultimately.
1: Yeah, well, I hope so. I hope that your listeners really find it helpful. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to join with you in such a fun and enriching conversation.
0: We appreciate your time as well. It's been really fun to get to hang out with you these couple episodes. Yes, and thank you. You never know, you might hear from us again when we have more questions. Yeah, hey, I would love that. Thank you so much for being <laughs> awesome. here.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Take care.